Amen. You grab a seat, and as you do, get a Bible on your lap. Acts chapter 21, if you would. If you need a Bible, there's one under a seat somewhere around you. Just uh, pick that up off the floor. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 21. If you don't own a Bible, leave with that one. That's our gift to you. We'd be happy for you to have that. Um, we, as we ca- uh, continue walking through the book of Acts, we have seen uh, the Apostle Paul is ending his third missionary journey, and he's heading east uh, back to the city of Jerusalem. And there's a couple of things uh, that are important as he makes his way back to the city of Jerusalem. Number one is this, that the Holy Spirit testified to him that what's waiting him, awaiting him in Jerusalem is imprisonment and affliction. And then on his return trip, as he stopped in a couple cities and he's met with the believers there, they've confirmed this. Hey, we want you to know, Paul, the Spirit has revealed to us uh, hard things are ahead for you in Jerusalem. And Paul knows this, and yet he's resolved to get back to Jerusalem. And I, I want to jump right into it this morning because we got some ground to cover. And I, wanna, I want you to look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 21 and pick it up in verse 27. Because exactly what has been prophesied is going to happen to the Apostle Paul here. Verse 27 of Acts 21. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, he's back in Jerusalem in the temple, he, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law, uh, uh, and, the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Uh, uh, if you're new to the Bible, this Apostle Paul, radically converted, uh, hated Jesus, hated the Jesus movement, radically converted. And for the last couple months, we as a church have been walking through the story of the very first church and how this Paul became the leading missionary, became the leader of taking the gospel all over the world. He's back in Jerusalem now, and exactly what has been prophesied would happen has happened. He's been beaten. He's, been, uh, he's now in custody. The Roman soldiers are trying to get, up, get him up into some safe ground in the barracks. And this begins a very interesting part of the book of Acts. An interesting part of the book of Acts that will last for five chapters. Uh, from this point on, Paul is going to remain in custody And from this point forward, there's going to be five what we'll call kind of trial scenes, five five opportunities in which Paul is going to have to defend his faith before different groups of people. Um, Each of these trials kind of, um, Paul appears before um, increasingly powerful people in the Roman kingdom. And um, so what we're going to do today uh, is a bit different 
uh, than maybe what we normally do on a Sunday. If, you're used, if harvest is your home, what you're used to is we kind of turn to one page in the Bible and we make our way through a couple paragraphs or maybe a whole chapter. Um, today we're covering five chapters. That's right, we're not leaving until 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> we're going to kind of survey five chapters and here's why. I thought it would be helpful for us to try to synthesize how does Paul defend himself in each of these five trial scenes? What, is he, what does he say? What does he focus on with, when his faith is on trial? And now, I hope today is very helpful for us. And we might be going, how, how is this going to be helpful for us? I mean, um, we don't plan this week to stand on trial for our faith. None of us probably have plans this week to enter a courtroom and stand on trial because in our culture, thank the Lord, that doesn't often happen as we follow Jesus. But I think today is going to be very important Um, because as we pull a principle from each of these five trial scenes, my hope is that this prepares us as a group of Jesus followers to know how, like, what are we supposed to say when our faith is on trial? And and in what ways in our culture might we find our faith on trial? I can think of a couple. Um, Often, maybe at times in intellectual or academic settings, Christians can find their faith on trial. As as, as we can often be painted into a corner as maybe being, quote-unquote, like intellectual weaklings because of some of the supernatural we believe from the Bible. Um, What types of things should we focus on when we find our faith on trial in intellectual settings? Um, what types of things should we focus on in defending our faith when we might find ourselves on trial, so to speak, when it comes to the topic of moral or ethical decisions in our culture? Uh, at times, our culture can maybe paint us into a corner and go, you outdated antiques of people. Why do you, why do you make moral and ethical decisions on a book that was written thousands and thousands of years ago? What, what should we say in situations like that? And then increasingly so in our culture, um, we can and have the, t- we, we have the possibility of standing legally before some accusations because of our adherence to the Bible, because we follow Jesus. I hope today is an investment in preparing us What types of things do we say and focus on when we find our faith on trial? And so um, here's kind of the structure for how we're going to look at each of Paul's defense speeches here today. And I want to get this before you. So um, what we're going to do is for each of his defense speeches, I want to take some time to set the stage. Um, Who is accusing Paul? Who is he defending his faith before? Because that's important for us to understand in each of these quote-unquote trial scenes. Uh, And then after that, we kind of want to see the principle. What is the principle about what Paul says in defending himself that we should pull for ourselves today as we maybe find ourselves on the quote-unquote witness stand for our faith at times? What's the principle we can pull? And those principles are each of the five points that we have on your outline before you. And then we're going to apply these principles to our life. So five powerful principles when we find our faith on trial And we're going to cover some ground today in looking at these. So let's pray and ask for God's help this morning before we do. Father, give us clarity now. Um, We're not typically in our church used to trying to uh, take a survey of five chapters of the Bible. Lord, I'm not used to teaching in that way. And Lord, I just just ask for clarity. Lord, um, I know you want your word taught clearly. 
Uh, Lord, and so um, would your spirit just come to a great work in our heart? Lord, a lot of, lot of teaching today. Um, and so, God, I ask that as your word is unpacked and your word is, uh, goes forth, God, would you do what only your spirit can do and really drive the application into our heart that you want to apply to each individual heart here today. And so, uh, Lord, um, we know you're here with us. We don't ask, have to ask you to be here because you are here with us. But, Lord, I do ask for your word to powerfully go forth and transform hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, let's set the stage here for... The first defense speech, defense number one from Paul, and it has to do with him appearing before this angry mob. Like, think about what we just read out of the Bible here a little bit. The guards had to carry him up the steps because people are after him. They're carrying him up the steps. And now, Paul, look at what Paul does in front of this angry mob. Uh, Acts 21, verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. The dude's crazy again. Angry mob after him. They've, they've, they've tried to beat him already to the point where they killed him. And he's like, let me in front of him. Let me talk to him. We've seen this over and over again in how Paul operates. He wants to preach to them because he wants to tell them about Christ. Verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, now here comes his defense, but I just want to get you to the scene here. Angry mob goes to an, like, an incredible hushed silence as they hear Paul speak to them in Hebrew. And they're confused because here's this guy who's been hanging out with all these Greeks and now he's, now he's speaking to them in Hebrew as a Jew and, and, and a hush comes over this entire mob. And here's what Paul says. Brothers and fathers, Hear the, what's the word it says in Acts 22, verse 1? Hear the what? Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, and they became even more quiet. And he said this, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all, as all of you are to this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. 
And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone, uh, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and I beat those, uh, those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. The first, the first uh, defense Paul makes here and the first quote-unquote makeshift trial before an angry mob back in Jerusalem, devout Jews, they want to devour him. They want to see his life done. And he stands on the steps and he addresses them in Hebrew. And um, very simply, how would you summarize verses 1 through 21 of Acts 22? What does he do? He shares his testimony. That's like all he does. Like in front of an angry, angry mob of people, he stands up and he goes, let me just tell you what this Jesus has done in my life. And, and I just want to take that and from this first trial scene, I want to apply that to our life and I want to say this, when my faith is on trial, when you find yourself backed into an intellectual corner, when you find yourself in the minority on a moral ethical issue, when you find yourself in hot water because you're following Jesus, when your faith is on trial, start here. I'll clearly share my testimony. That's all Paul does in the very first trial scene here. He just says, here's who I was before Jesus. Here's when Jesus radically intersected my path and changed my life. And here's what my life has been given to since then. And here's why I think it is so important for us to just be ready to clearly share our testimony when we find our faith on trial. Because... Um, Many arguments can happen over as you try to debate um, academic intellectual principles with people. Many arguments can happen as you try to debate moral and ethical principles with people. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. We should do it. We should stand for truth. But here's the deal. No one can satisfactorily and adequately deny what Jesus Christ has done in your own heart. And the people closest to you who aren't yet Christians, who've seen your pre-Jesus years, and we're all going, oh, Lord, my pre-Jesus years. Who've seen your pre-Jesus years and have seen the post-Jesus years and have to acknowledge there's something radically different in that guy or in that woman. This just gives us an opportunity to bring to light what happened. We just start. Just start here. When you find your faith on trial, when you find yourself like, oh, it's feeling like this is getting tense because I'm bringing out kind of my Christian faith here, just start with your clear testimony. 
So what are, just to help us out here and prepare us for this week, should we find ourselves in a situation like this, what are components of a clear testimony? Here's kind of how we always teach people how to structure your testimony. Your testimony is kind of a church word. If you're not a church person, it means this, the story of what Jesus Christ has done in our, to transform our heart. Okay, the story of what Jesus Christ has done to save us and transform our heart. So components of a clear testimony. Start here. I was. Very simply, who were you before Jesus Christ? I was. Then tell your story. I was whoever you were before Jesus. Uh, second part, but Christ. When did Jesus Christ intersect your life, uh, transform you, redeem you, save you, call, him to, call, call you to himself? When did that happen in your life? What were the circumstances there? Tell him about the saving power of the grace of God in your life and when Jesus Christ saved you. And then, and now. I was but Christ and now. What has your life looked like since you followed Jesus? You hear us do this every time we have baptisms here at Harvest. Tell us about your life before Jesus. When did Jesus save you? What's your life been like since then? Um, as God gives us opportunities in tense situations when we feel like our faith is on trial and in not tense situations, would we just be faithful to clearly share the testimony of the grace of God and what he's done in our heart? And this is all Paul does here. And what was the result? A mass revival broke out, right? No. He got to a certain part where he's like, and God called me to go to the Greeks. And they're like, away with him. Enough. We've heard enough. Let's take him out. And so the crowd gets unruly yet again. The soldiers bring him back to a safe place inside the barracks. He's in custody. And the next day, he's going to stand before the council. He's going to stand before the, the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin. And, 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 and kind of the authorities here are going to try to get it. Why are, why are the Jews so upset with this guy? What has he done? And so we see now defense number two, trial number two, Paul before the council. Pick it up in chapter 23, verse 1. Uh, sorry, no, let's, uh, let's start here. 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, this is the tribune, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. I can picture it. I always try to picture this scene. He's, Paul is unbound. He's brought down, and now he's before the Sanhedrin, like the who's who of the Jewish faith, the power players of the Jewish faith. There's Paul Sanhedrin, the councils around him, verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this, point, up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Okay, so just get that there. Larry, stand up if you would. I'm going to be the guy standing next to Paul. You're going to be Paul, Okay. So you're talking, talk, Larry. Talk, talk. I'm talking. And you just get smacked right in the mouth okay. as Paul is talking here. The guy just looks at him and smacks him in the mouth. I wanted to really hit you, okay. but I love you too much, Larry. Okay. 
to, to, actually, to actually hit you here. As Paul's talking, the high priest, get the high priest, the high priest says, hit him in the face. We should, we should feel the, the hypocrisy there, and that hypocrisy is exactly what Paul calls out here. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Verse 3, then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Yeah, Paul. Paul's my kind of brother. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. There's one problem in this situation. Paul didn't realize he was actually addressing the high priest. Look at his immediate humility in light of the high priest even being wrong in this incident. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Verse 4, those who stood by him, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Wow. Now, when Paul perceived that one part, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Um, he just dropped a theological bomb in the midst of the meeting. It's, it's like Patriots fans and Colts fans. Peyton Manning's the best quarterback ever. Boom! Let, let, the, let the fireworks begin. You, the Sadducees, Pharisees, they did not see eye to eye on resurrection of the dead. Pharisees believe resurrection. Sadducees like, there's no resurrection. And Paul, Paul brilliantly says, I'm a Pharisee. I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Look at what happens here. Fireworks, verse 7. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, it's violent. Now, this is a church meeting gone bad. They're, they're fighting now. When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Feel the tension of this moment. The Romans sitting there who are completely outside of the Jewish faith, they don't understand. Like, what, what, did, what just happened? But they're seeing the volatile nature. They're seeing the violence break out. And they're like, we got to get this Paul dude out of here. He's going to get torn to pieces. Now, verse 11 is where I want us to focus to pull the second principle out of the second defense that Paul gives. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord, what's it say? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Sometimes I think when we read, especially the book of Acts, when we study the life of the Apostle Paul, we can, 
we can at times lose sight of, I think, that Paul was, Paul was a, just a man. Like we see him as like a hero of the faith, and he is, but he was a human hero. What, what I'm trying to bring out is, imagine us in the barracks in custody, having just been beaten, wondering what's ahead, knowing that the Spirit had testified imprisonment and affliction are waiting. What are those nights like for him in the barracks? We know of his deep faith. We know of his resolve. But what is he thinking in those nights? And then he's in the barracks that night. And, and, and I love how Luke tries to word this. He wants us to feel the presence of the Lord standing next to Paul there. He wants us to feel. He, he could have described this a lot of way, But he does it with an image that he wants us to see. The Lord stood by him. And he said, take courage, Paul. Imagine what that moment was like for Paul. The very near presence of the Lord in the heat of the trial. Second principle, when my faith is on trial, secondly, I'll do this. I'll confidently know Christ stands with me. We can't lose sight of that in faith on trial seasons we must remember that the very near presence of the Lord is there. How often have you heard a Christian say, on the other side of an extremely difficult season of circumstances in their life, how often have you heard a Christian say, I would never go back through those circumstances for anything, but I'd give anything to feel the very near presence of the Lord like I felt through it. This is this picture you have here. Just know in your heart, when your faith is on trial, when rocky seasons come because of allegiance to Christ, you have to confidently know that Christ stands with you. And he looks at Paul and he says, take courage. Now, this volatile meeting has happened. The Jewish leaders, they still want this Paul dead. So here's what happens. And I'd encourage you to take Take one day, Monday through Friday this week, and read chapters 22, 23, to 4, to 5, 26. Because I want you to see this all right here. But what happens is they plan an assassination attempt. And I, I'm, I'm not talking, I'm not talking um, like two or three of the crazies in the group got together and they're like, let's plan an assassination attempt. It says 40 people get together and they plan Paul's assassination 40 people. So, remarkably, Paul's nephew hears about this assassination attempt. And he rushes into the barracks and he's like, Paul, here's the deal, man. Um, you're about to, there's a hit on your life. You're about to be taken out. Like the first time they catch you out in public, if you're just surrounded by a few guys, like they're going to jump you, they're going to kill you. Paul says, hey, go, go, tell, go tell the tribune about this. Go tell the soldiers about this. Word gets out. The tribune orders a prison transfer. He says, we got to transfer this guy. We got to get him out of Jerusalem. The tribune orders a prison transfer of Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Get this. Guarded by two centuries of soldiers. That's 200 soldiers. Um, Mark, where's like 200 people in here? 
Sorry to put you on the spot, but is it these two sections? Stand, these, just you two sections, just stand up. Paul is going to make his way from Jerusalem to Caesarea guarded by this. And like y'all are tough, but you ain't Roman soldier tough. <laughs> Feel that. Y'all can sit down. 200 soldiers are going to escort Paul up to Caesarea. And when Paul gets there, I want you to flip in your Bible to chapter 24. Paul is going to make this third defense before the governor of Judea, the, the governor put in place by the Roman Empire, a guy named Felix. And Paul's going to make his third defense before Felix. And Felix is going to say, hey, when, when the chief priests come up and they bring their accusations against you, I will hear your case. And so the chief priests come to Caesarea. They bring with them their lawyer. Their lawyer makes some opening statements on their accusation against Paul. And now Paul begins to defend himself before Governor Felix. Pick it up, Acts 24, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him, Paul, to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according, here's what I want us to see here. But this I confess to you, that according to, what's he say? According to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by what? By the law and written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, and there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul's boldness has not diminished whatsoever. Now before the Roman governor of the region, the chief priests have come up. They brought a Tertullius, a, a lawyer, and they've made their accusations. And Paul, he begins, as he defends himself before Governor Felix, he just affirms some very powerful uh, 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 things of his faith. He says, I'm here because of the way. And I'm a man who believes everything that the law and prophets have spoken. Here's how, I want to, here's how I want to say it for us, what the principle I'm trying to pull from that verse right there. Number three, when my faith is on trial, I'll do this. I'll boldly affirm Jesus as the way and his word as the word. When my faith is on trial, you don't see Paul shrink back. I'm here because of the way. I'm a follower of the way. They call it a sect. Whatever, I'm here because of the way, and I'm a man who affirms everything that the law and the prophet says. And oh, by the way, there will be a resurrection of the dead. There's no loss of boldness here on Paul's part. When my faith is on trial, let's continue to be people, not, not obnoxiously, not with a mean tone. Just we boldly affirm Jesus as the way and his word as the word. Here's why this is important. When we are in seasons of faith on trial, whatever that might look like for us in 2018, 
in American Christianity. When we're there, there is nothing that often culture wants to do more than chip away at our resolve of believing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. That's not a popular message in our culture. And so in faith on trial seasons, a lot of times what happens is people want to take the pickaxe and the chisel to chip away at our resolve to say Jesus is the way. He is. The second area when our faith is on trial that often wants to be chipped away at is our resolve to really believe that the word of God is what it is, the word of God. And in faith on trial season, our resolve is, can often be chipped away at to just say, like, do you really believe that the word, you really believe in, like, the inerrant, that the Bible is inerrant and it's really spoken by God and we affirm, yes, we do. And this is what you see here by Paul, a resolve to be bold before this Roman governor to say, I'm here because of the way and he is the way. And I'm a man of the law and the prophets. I'm a man of the word. There will be a resurrection of the dead. When your faith is on trial, do not let the circumstances chip away on your resolve of Jesus is the way and the word is the word. Come on, church, say amen. amen. It's, gonna, it's way easier to say, I just set you up. It's way easier to say amen here on Sunday morning. It's hard in the midst of the circumstance. That's why we need community, locked arms together to help us stand with Jesus is the way and the word is the word and some of the hardest circumstances we'll find ourselves in. So what happens after this? Paul defends himself before the Roman governor of the province and uh, nothing happens. For two years, he sits in Caesarea in custody. For two years. Think, of, think about everything that's happened in your life in the last two years. Paul sat in custody in Caesarea. A new governor replaces Felix. His name is Festus. Festus replaces Felix. Festus begins kind of his reign down in Jerusalem. And some of the religious leaders in Jerusalem say, hey, Festus, Festus, hey, come here, come here. Hey, man, you got a prisoner up there. His name's Paul. When you get up there, you're going to meet him. He's obnoxious about this Jesus guy. Hey, um, what do you think we work something out here? What if we brought Paul back down? What if we brought Paul back down to Jerusalem to try him here? Here's why they wanted to do that. They haven't given up on their assassination attempt. They're going to jump him on his way back to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill him. Here's the deal. Festus, he's a, new, uh, he's, he's a new guy on the political scene. He wants to win some favor with the Jews. He's ready to do the Jewish leaders a favor. So what's going to happen here? And Paul's defense number four, before Governor Festus, Acts 25, verse 9. Pick it up with me there. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And Paul says, you're nuts. I know exactly what's going to happen if I'm brought back to Jerusalem. That's a death sentence for me. Verse 10, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. 
To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charge against me, no one can give me up to them. And then he says the words, I appeal to, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. What does that mean? Where is Paul headed? He's going to Rome. I want us to see, Paul has known, Paul has known for a while now that the Spirit's going to call him to Rome. He's known the end destination is Rome. When my faith is on trial, I'll, number four is this, I'll trustingly, Remember, God is sovereignly at work. What do I mean by this point? We know in the grand scheme, the meta narrative, the big story that Paul had to get to Rome. Here's a question for you. He was closer to Rome back when he was in Corinth. Why didn't God say, hey, just hang a left, go to Rome? Why does God take Paul to Rome via coming all the way back to Jerusalem, getting thrown in custody, transferred up to Caesarea before all of these leaders. Why does God do it like that? There's a lot of conjecture on why God does it like that, but at the end of the day, it's really important to say we don't know why God decided to do it like that. Here's what we do know. God, in his sovereignty, he wanted Paul to go testify to the gospel, as we've seen him say, in the city of Rome. Why has God decided to take Paul to Rome via Jerusalem? I don't know. Is it because he wanted him to proclaim the gospel before Felix and Festus? Probably. But at the end of the day, we don't know. And here is something that's really important to us as we lean on the sovereignty of God in faith on trial seasons. We have to be good with saying, I don't know why it's going like this, but here's what I do know. I know that I know the God who does know. I don't know why God is doing it like this, but I know that God, and I know he's good, and he's a good dad, and he knows, and I'm good. And it, it takes us some time to get there, right? I mean, when often in faith on trial seasons, like on the fun meter, it's a big zero, right? Like it's not... Yeah, can I go through this season again, Lord? Like, it's, it's hard, and it's painful, and it's all of those things. And we can go, God, why are you doing it like this? Why, why in this circumstance have I been, like, I feel like fiercely loyal to you in this and doing what you've said to do in your word? And, and why are these things happening? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But he does know. And we're good with that. Paul appeals to Caesar here. Next week, we're going to watch him board a boat. Pastor Joe's going to preach to us Acts 27. He's going to board a boat headed to Rome. But one more defense happens before he boards that boat. And it's defense number five. And it's a dignitary comes to town. A guy by the name of King Herod Agrippa II. And Festus says, hey, I got this, I got this crazy prisoner down here. 
you got to hear what this guy is saying. And King Herod says, bring him out. I want to hear him. And I just want to end with this beautiful, beautiful thing that Paul witnesses to before King Herod Agrippa. Acts 26, verse 22. Paul before Herod. Here's what he says. Well, let's start at 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Now, get this. He's, he's replying to Festus, I'm not out of my mind. What I'm saying is true. I shift Agrippa. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of the things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He just takes the opportunity. King Agrippa has come to town. He looks him square in the eye and says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I know you do. And the prophets spoke of the Savior who would come. King Agrippa, believe. You really think you're going to convince me to be a Christian over this? I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Short time or long, I don't care. I just want you to know this Jesus. I want you to be what I am, except don't have these chains on you in the process. Fifth point, and then we're done, is this. When my faith is on trial, I will boldly witness to the gospel of Jesus. Look at, look at, look at your accusers, the people making your life hard. Don't pack up now. Please look at me. This is the most important part. Your accusers, the people making your life hard, the people ridiculing you as an intellectual weakling that you would believe in all this supernatural stuff from the Bible, the people who believe that you believe in just some and this, this book of antiquity that's supposed to guide your moral and ethical, when you find, do not miss an opportunity to lovingly look them in the eye and proclaim to them the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. You can't control their reaction in that moment, but you can control testifying to the gospel of this grace as you do. This is a good fitting place for us to stop. Don't miss next week as Pastor Joe unpacks for us. Paul boarding that boat going to Rome. But um, we're closing our time here today by taking communion. 
And as we partake in communion, if you're serving communion, you can go ahead and head to the back and get ready to serve. But um, if you're not serving communion, keep your eyes right up here on me because I don't want to miss an opportunity to do exactly what Paul has just done here with King Agrippa. I don't want to miss an opportunity for you if you've walked in the room today and you, you, you have some, some, some rough, nebulous concept of what this Jesus thing is all about, but it's never become personal to you. It's never been driven home in your heart. And, and maybe you think that it's just, it's just about, you know, go to church, be a pretty good person. I want you to understand what Paul just did with King Agrippa in the room. He looked at him and he said, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Now, here's the deal. The prophets spoke of a Savior that was to come, Agrippa. Do you want to know this Savior? His reaction is, you think you're going to persuade me to be a Christian right now? He says, I don't care how long it takes. I just want you to know this Christ. And I look at you today and I say, if you're in here today and you're, you've walked in as a skeptic to it, you've walked in just indifferent to Jesus, you've walked in maybe with an understanding of like you're always growing up in the church, but Jesus personally has never transformed your heart. Back to earlier in the message, do you have a testimony? Who were you before Jesus? When did Jesus intersect your life and save you? What's your life look like then? If you're sitting there going like, I don't think I ever have a time where Jesus intersected and saved. I don't know what that means. I want you to hear this today as we prepare to take communion. That all of us in this room have sinned and offended a holy God. And the penalty for our sin is a death penalty. And God, listen, That doesn't make God a bad God. That makes God a perfectly holy, just God. It's what we deserve. But God, out of the great love in which he loved us, he did not leave it there. Jesus came to earth to die on a cross to pay that death penalty on our behalf. There's an offer of love. There's a sacrifice of love that he makes to us. All of the sin of the world on his shoulders. When he went to the cross, he died, he was buried, and then he rose again. And in his resurrection, there's hope. There's hope for life over sin. There's hope for life over death. That's the hope that Jesus Christ offers to you today. But the Bible says a a response is commanded, and a response is demanded, and it's a response of faith. And that's a hard thing for us. We are wired to be people that says, I have to do something. Okay, I'll go out and do something to earn this. You can't earn it. You respond to that message of the good news of Jesus by faith here, right here and right now. Will you call on Jesus and be saved here today? And in in, in a few moments, ushers are going to come up and they're going to pass out communion elements. And right there in your seat between you and God, the Bible says you can call on that Jesus today and he's faithful to come save you. And you'll walk out of here going, I had everything before this Sunday was I was before Jesus, but Christ, here and right now, but Christ. By the grace of Jesus Christ, he saved me and he set me free. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say after this. And your life will never be the same. Hear that right. It's a false gospel. It's a false message when that, when people mean like, and your life's only going to be good and awesome all the time. It's not that. 
It's a firm resolve of a Savior walking with you even when life isn't good and awesome all the time. And it's a hope of eternal life and of a Savior who's one day going to come back and he's going to right all the wrongs. And he's going to wipe every tear. That's the Savior we're following here today. And so ushers, come forward now. And if you're in this room and you are a Christian, now's the time we remember that sacrifice we've just unpacked. And we remember the sacrifice through communion. We take of the elements. Remember something scripture commands us now. Don't take of this in an unworthy manner. Slow the throttle of your heart down right now. Really, slow the throttle of your heart down right now. And let the Lord do some heart surgery here. Let's not be a church that takes of this flippantly. We would have stood at the foot of the cross. We would have seen with our eyes what it cost him. As we remember that sacrifice, slow the throttle down. Let the Lord speak to your heart. Let him, let him lovingly convict you of sin. Confess that sin. Thank him for what he's done. And if you're here right now and you're not a Jesus follower, now is the time. What are you waiting for? And I say that lovingly moments here in the quiet as the worship team plays over us, cry out to Jesus. Give him the reign of your life. Give him the keys to it all.